August 15th marked the 70th anniversary of independence for India and Pakistan. Happy birthday! Or not, accompanying independence was the partition of colonial India into the two countries, with Pakistan intended as a homeland for the subcontinent's Muslim population. The sectarian basis of the carve-up has been well documented and much discussed, along with the divergent political history of the two countries, including conflicts between the two. Yes, I know there are now three countries Bangladesh having broken away from Pakistan in 1971. We're going to take a different tack. What were the economic underpinnings of independence, of partition, and how have the countries fared economically since then? And to what extent does their separation at birth explain their economic performance? Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss. I write about global economics for Bloomberg View in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. Well, to help us work through the economics of partition, we have two guests in very different parts of the world with different perspectives. Here in New York, we have our colleague Faris Khan, a senior editor on the corporate finance team at Bloomberg News, whose family left India for Pakistan as part of an economic and commercial strategy. Our second guest is Nisad Hajari, Asia editor for Bloomberg View and author of Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. He joins us from Bangkok. Nisad and Faris, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks. Terrific. India is perceived to be booming and Pakistan is perceived to be, shall we say, economically challenged. Anything wrong with this picture? I'd say that picture is broadly correct, uh, but of course, uh, it can be exaggerated. You know, Pakistan isn't doing as badly as many would think, and India isn't doing as well as some of its champions would like to would like to argue. I mean, if you look at uh, where Pakistan is today, they've they've uh, emerged from an IMF bailout package. Uh, the, st- the stock market has been doing relatively well. Growth is hovering around four or five percent, which isn't, you know, as high as India, but it's but it's enough to put the economy on a fairly positive path. Um, on the flip side, you look at India; uh, they've sort of lost their ranking as the as the fastest growing big economy in the world um, after the shock of demonetization last fall and after the introduction of this new GST tax this summer. They're still struggling to get private investment going. They're still struggling with a bad loans problem. And above all, they're struggling to create jobs, uh, even though they have a, a vast and growing population. Faris, any thoughts? I, I would agree with what Nisid is saying, but I would add certainly um, when it comes to Pakistan, there has been recently a positive signs from the economy, but the recent ousting of uh, the, the prime minister of Pakistan, uh, the former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, uh, after he got ensnared in a corruption sna- uh, scandal, uh, does not really bode well for stability in that country. And that speaks to the biggest problem in Pakistan is that it goes, it has been constantly uh, trapped in a period of stability where the military and the civil institutions are vying for power and the military usually ends up with the upper hand. And whatever economic gains, social gains that country sees keep on getting eroded by the struggle between these various factions. 
were the fates of the two countries sealed in partition? I mean, was were they have they been on this kind of predetermined course, or were there things that happened in the intervening years that have sort of set these uh, plans on course and, and the economies and the directions that they've been going? No, I think you know it's important to remember that um, this hasn't been the course uh, that both countries have followed since partition. I mean, early on, um, you know, India devalued the rupee in 1949, and Pakistan didn't. And that stronger currency, combined with the commodity boom that was sparked by the Korean War, uh, allowed Pakistan to accumulate surpluses, which they needed to industrialize. So for the next three decades, its economy averaged growth around six percent. You know, double what what India was. Was managing at the time when it was under central planning. It was only after India liberalized in 1991 that its economic, the economic fortunes of the two countries really reversed, uh, and India started to fulfill its potential and, and, and take advantage of all the you know, advantages it did have, including its, the size of its population, the size of its market, and so on. Uh, so it wasn't uh, inevitable that uh, India would be the economic superpower, but certainly it, it had inbuilt advantages that Pakistan did not. I, I agree. I mean, um, there was a saying when I was growing up in Pakistan in the 1980s that uh, in Pakistan, you have more rich people uh, and a poor government, while in India, you have a rich government and poor people. And I think that has sort of reversed when India went uh, through the path of liberalization. Pakistan did certainly see uh, some strong periods of growth in the 1960s because of the economic, macroeconomic policies was pursuing. Uh, but those gains were never made into permanent gains because whatever growth you might see would also be accompanied by a lot of political instability, which again, aid into those gains. And finally, after a strong period of growth in the 1960s, uh, the country entered the 1970s in a state where basically the country was dismembered. So let's go back a little bit in time here. Faris, tell us some more about your family's business and why Pakistan looked better way back then. So my, my family was not in business per se. Most of the, my father's side who came to Pakistan did not come right in the aftermath of partition. It was not that they were forced to leave where they were in North India, what is now North India. Immediately after partition, a lot of Muslims from North India and other as well as other parts of India came to Pakistan not so much that they were fleeing oppression in India, but there were a lot of opportunities for them in the new state of Pakistan. Pakistan, when Pakistan was created, they, the kind of institutions that the British left or exist in India, there were fewer of them in Pakistan in terms of civilian infrastructure, government infrastructure. So there was a great demand uh, in the new state for people to come in and man these new positions. And North Indian Muslims especially, who were uh, also the, some of the biggest advocates of Pakistan. For them, it was natural for them now to come and take over those jobs. Th they could be jobs as bureaucrats in the, new go in, the, um, in, in the new State Bank of Pakistan, in the new in airport structure, in the new educational institutions. So there was a big boom, uh, uh, and you needed people. So many of my relatives came to take over those jobs. My father... He came to Pakistan in the early 1960s, much later. Again, for him, it was that his sisters were already there. And there were still a lot of jobs available in Pakistan, but not enough people. So naturally, it was to his advantage to leave India and come to Pakistan. My mother came later when she married my dad in the 1970s. 
So, Ferris, did they actually get to enjoy the fruits of those economic opportunities? Are they still doing that today? I mean, what what kind of work exactly um, were they and have they been in? So, so my father um, took on a different seat. First, he was working for an airline. Then he joined Pakistan Radio. And then he became a producer in Pakistan Television. And this is all in one decade. Uh, and then he moved into public relations after that. The, yes, so, so they, they certainly did enjoy um, the boom that was in, taking place in Pakistan uh, well into the 60s and the 70s, uh, and to some extent the 1980s. My parents were what you can describe as the very small part of the very small urban upper middle class, educated professionals who were in Karachi or Lahore, Islamabad, uh, and they, they, they definitely benefited. But the state and the country at large, I don't think, was enjoying the same levels of growth. Uh, my mother, she moved to Pakistan in, in right after, right before the 71 war. So her first experience after six months arriving, and she's an academic. Uh, was that six months after coming to Pakistan, there's a war between the two countries and she could no longer be in touch with her own parents for, I guess it was a couple of years. Uh, so it was a, a little bit of trauma involved at, uh, for her at that time. And, and she focused on her academic career in Pakistan at that time. Uh, but so, so they, they were part of the upper middle class uh, group in Karachi. So Pakistan began to fall behind after this very promising start. Nisid, how much of that can be attributed to these on-off periods of military rule? And why doesn't the military play any significant role in India's political life by comparison? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, let's take your second question first. Uh, you know, this this is a notable difference between the two countries that there's never been a coup uh, in India. And um, part of it goes back to the fact that India at partition uh, had stronger, more well-established and better staffed uh, institutions. Um, they, they were inheriting the machinery of the Raj. Um, they had uh, people in place, people who had been working these jobs uh, for, for quite a long time. And uh, uh, you know, the military had always adhered to civilian rule there. In Pakistan, on the other hand, you had faced a situation where uh, you really felt after the riots of partition, and which remember something like 14 million people across the border from one side to the other, nearly a million people may have died. Uh, you had a, a real sense in Pakistan that India posed an existential threat, that it had never accepted partition and didn't want Pakistan to exist and hoped to reabsorb it uh, one day. And then the other important thing is that the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, died barely a year after independence. So you had a situation where you had sort of weak and confused civilian leadership. The army was the strongest and most professional institution in the country. And it was natural for people to look to them for stability. Um, and that was a role they claimed for themselves. Um, and so they, you know, that led to one of the first coups uh, and, and subsequent ones as well. They've, they've always portrayed themselves as the defenders of, of Pakistan's sovereignty against this threat from next door uh, in, in India. Um, and as Farah said earlier, uh, that's right, the constant back and forth between civilian and military rule um, works against stability. Um, it discourages investment. I mean, you see what's happened to, to Pakistan just since 9-11 with the degree of violence that they've had to deal with. Um, that, that scares people off. Uh, and it, it makes it hard to um, 
for for investors to see a long-term future uh, there. Has Pakistan suffered and is its current predicament in part explained by its long land border with Afghanistan? Now, you mentioned post-9-11, but Afghanistan's been going through periods of tumult long before that. Does that have anything to do with what's going on here? It certainly, it certainly um, adds to the challenge of Pakistan. I mean, uh, having a border that was always contested by Afghanistan, because if you remember, the border that defines the boundaries of India and Pakistan was first of all uh, created under the Raj. And the Afghan government then and subsequent Afghan governments have always questioned the legitimacy of that border. So that has added to this constant paranoia in Pakistan that we are surrounded by people who don't really recognize our right to exist. We have India on one side that perhaps wants to reabsorb us and correct uh, the tragedy of partition. And then we have Afghanistan on the other side, which questions the legitimacy of the border and uh, therefore has in- has strong interest on the borderlands straddling the border between the two countries. So it does add to the instability. What it, at its worst has done has, it has constantly fueled the paranoia that has strengthened the hand of the military in terms of positioning itself that we are the only ones who can defend you uh, as we are surrounded by people who don't want us to exist. Let's talk about India's economy for a moment here. That country is reporting numbers that would, would make it the fastest growing major economy in the world, even faster than China. And, and yet at the same time, it has legendary bureaucratic issues. Uh, they just had uh, a, a major issue this past year where they scrapped a, a huge amount of currency. We did a whole separate podcast on that. You have a prime minister, Narendra Modi, who is uh, you know, taking the country in new direction and even fanning sectarian flames in a way. How does this all bode for the future of India's economy? Can it really uh, keep up the, the growth that's made it uh, so special? It uh, it really depends. I mean, I think some of the growth numbers are a little suspect um, because if you look deeper down at other numbers like private investment, for instance, um, they are they're extremely worrying. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, jobs in particular, you've got you know a, a need to create uh, something like a million jobs a month just to absorb the the people entering the workforce, and you don't have a, uh, an established and major manufacturing sector, which is really the only way to absorb that number of people. Uh, the, the Modi government has uh, tried to establish this Make in India program, but it hasn't really amounted to much. They haven't been able to change, uh, in particular, the laws that make it harder for companies to hire and fire, uh, which is why so many of them remain so small. Uh, and that's that's preventing uh, growth in the manufacturing sector. And then you've got, um, you know, part of the problem with the stall in investment is that you have a, a major overhang of bad loans uh, in, in the state bank sector that still hasn't been dealt with. Um, and that is preventing banks from lending, is preventing borrowers from, from wanting to take on more debt. Uh, and unless you solve all these problems, I don't think it'll be you'll be able to sustain the kind of gaudy uh, top-line GDP numbers that the government likes to boast about. Faris, does Pakistan have an economic future or even a future? 
yes and yes. I absolutely do think that Pakistan both has an economic future and a future, um, but it's not going to be an easy struggle for those who want to write Pakistan's course. But I certainly have a lot of faith in many people in Pakistan who do see the struggles for what they are. But it's it's going to be a long slog, and I think it's going to uh, test the patience of both Pakistanis and Pakistan's neighbors and Pakistan's friends and detractors of the world. I mean, this is a country that's close to, the population is already well over 200 million. It may almost double in three decades. It's a country uh, that is a major significant military power with nuclear weapons. This is a country that's really not going away anywhere. This is a country that can both offer a lot of opportunities and offer tremendous challenges to its neighbors. This is a country that India, for instance, rather would have succeed on its own rather than splinter into more and more chaos because that is going to really also affect India to the detriment of India. So, so it's it's going to be a long slog. It's going to require a lot of reform in the country. It's going to reform. It's going to require a lot of patience from uh, Pakistan's neighbors. A failed Pakistan is unacceptable. Gentlemen, thank you both. And again, happy 70th. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute, rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. Scott at Scott Landman. Faris, how do they find you? They can find me at FCON33 at Bloomberg.net. And Nisset. I'm on Twitter at, at Nisset Hajari. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. See you next time. Mm-hmm.